0: We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. Welcome to Novel
0: Feelings, where two psychologists take a deep dive into fiction novels. And as usual, don't forget to keep up to date with us by subscribing on your favourite podcast app or following us via at novel underscore feelings on Instagram and Twitter. Following us on social media is actually kind of
1: important... I would say mm. this time around if you would like
0: to keep up with us because there may be some things in the works. There might be a season three happening. Mm. Uh, yeah we've taken a long break. We um, have. Yes. <laughs> it's been a long time since we've posted any kind of audio review. We're still doing blog reviews and briefer reviews on our Instagram but look, we've missed it. We've missed doing the full in-depth reviews. And we have actually read or had, you know, quite a number of books on our TBR lists that have mental health content or have psychological issues and so on that we just want to talk about. So there might be some episodes incoming. Yeah. So our social is once again at (laughs) underscore feelings on Instagram and Twitter. So maybe stay tuned. Yeah, there are some exciting things around the corner. But today we are here for another interview, our third and most likely final one for 2022. The opportunity to interview another author came across our inbox recently, and we were a bit excited by this one. Just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Today we are interviewing Nina Kenwood, the author of It Sounded Better In My Head and the most recent Unnecessary Drama. Nina Kenwood is an
1: award-winning author living in Melbourne. Her debut YA novel, It Sounded Better in My Head, won the Text prize and was a finalist for the American Library Association's William C. Morris Award, a CBCA notable book, as well as being shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. It's done well. (laughs) It's done very well. (laughs) It Sounded Better in My Head has been published in six languages and is option for film.
0: That is news to me. That's exciting. Yeah, I found that on the website. It's a bit, um mm. some good news. But today we are focusing on Nina's newly released book called Unnecessary Drama. A bit about the book. So 18-year-old Brooke is the kind of friend who not only remembers everyone's birthdays, but also organises the group present, pays for it, and politely chases others for their share relatable mm-hmm. she's the helper the doer the garter of drinks the minder of bags the maker of spreadsheets she's the responsible one who always follows the rules and she plans to keep it that way during her first year of university her new share house is rules light but no unnecessary drama means no fights tension or romance between housemates when one of her housemates turns out to be Jessie, her high school nemesis brooke is nervously confident that she can handle it They'll simply silently endure living together and stay out of each other's way. But it turns out Jesse isn't so easy to ignore.
1: Ah, rom-com, rom-com. love <laughs> <it. Yeah. laughs> Before we get started on the interview, just a disclaimer, as always, that we are trained psychologists, but this podcast should not be taken as direct therapeutic advice. Please consult a professional for a more specific and tailored advice. The first half of this interview is spoiler-free. But the second half contains, well, is it minor or is it like just spoilers in general? The second (laughs) half contains spoilers for unnecessary drama as we dig into the mental health content and what happens in the second half in the book. Also, we'll just flag that this interview
0: has been edited for length. And a couple of quick content notes, so please know that today we're talking about topics such as anxiety and catastrophizing, difficult family relationships and parental neglect, and a little bit about alcohol use and misuse. Yes, so let's get into it. So Nina, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to having a chat about unnecessary drama and asking all of the detailed questions about the (laughs) mental health rep in this book. (laughs) Thank you for having me. First off, how does it feel to be
2: releasing
1: your second novel? How does it compare to the first one?
2: It's a lot. It's a lot calmer. The first one, you're so well. I'm an extremely anxious person. I think you can probably tell that from my books. Yeah, the first, the first book that you, well, the, when I released my first book, I um, had just had my first child like three months earlier. So I was in, um, I was sleep deprived. I was. You know, I had a new baby. I had all of those emotions going on, so it was a lot. I was just in a um, in a very overwhelmed place and so that was a lot so this this time the second book has felt a lot calmer but I think a lot of that is to do with not having not being completely sleep deprived and having a newborn
1: yeah that's great I'm glad you
0: have a calmer experience this time around <laughs> Yeah. I imagine even without the experience of having the newborn there's probably that you know excitement and anxiety that can come out with having the first release too
2: Exactly. It was because I had never published anything before. So it was like going from zero to a hundred in terms of making yourself vulnerable to so many people through your work. And I had no idea what that would feel like to, you know, there's a lot of yourself, especially with my first book that, well, both books, there's a lot of my sort of stuff in there, but it's such a vulnerable feeling putting a book out into the world. Um, And I had no idea what to expect. So now I'm much more, uh, uh, emotionally ready for that vulnerability
1: yeah are there things that you're doing differently this time around to I suppose prepare or get through
2: not so much I think it's just being more comfortable talking about yourself being more comfortable talking about the work um, being less afraid of bad reviews I've read a lot of reviews a lot of you know uh, I have I my first book, has a lot of good Goodread- good reads reviews and you know there's a ho- the whole range in there and um, so I and I am the kind of author for better or worse who reads their reviews. so um, you build up some barriers around reading negative things and and that's all fine now. So I'm a lot more um, I'm a lot stronger around the whole process. I feel a lot more I know how to protect myself. And where I need to protect myself
0: yeah that's great have you been reading the reviews of the new book yes yep yep mm.
2: I read I read all the reviews which is you know what I think anyone that takes the time to read your book and write about it this, that's that's meaningful that's it's hard for me to really get mad at a bad review especially a goodreads review where it's like they're not being paid they have read the book off their you know own they've bought the book they've read the book I'm just grateful to have people engaging with the work, really.
0: Yeah, I think it's also an important reminder to people on Goodreads that sometimes the author does read your review. So <laughs> uh, c- kindness goes a long way. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, but, you know, it's not an author's space. It's a reader's space and I respect that and I would never respond to any review. And uh, it is interesting. I, I kind of love seeing what people respond to and even if it's a negative response, it's interesting to see what... People think and where you know where, what what works what doesn't and often it's the same thing someone will love and someone will hate so you're never going to please anyone well
0: as we know in the words of taylor swift hate is going to hate 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 hate, hate. <laughs> very topical this week coming out. <laughs> yes well i know that uh both of us really related to a lot of Brooks in a world. Um, in particular, her anxiety. <laughs> um, she was a very strong protagonist and one that I'm sure a lot of readers are going to, you know, be able to step into the shoes of very easily. Can you tell us about how you conceptualize Brooks in a world and her thought processes?
2: I started writing it in 2020, which was a very, very anxious mm-hmm. year uh, for everyone um, and for people who are already. Anxious like me, that was just a very heightened time. Um, I had a one year old. I was trying to, I was returning to work from maternity leave. I was trying to write. I was trying to work. I was trying to parent and I was trying to exist in the world of COVID. And all of that anxiety uh, sort of came out on the page through Brooke. Not that COVID is not in the book. Brooke's anxieties are obviously the anxieties of an 18 year old, not a a 30 something year old mother. But, um, while we were worrying about completely different things, we were kind of vibrating at the same frequency. I like to think. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very easy to tap into the mind of an anxious character when I was in that place. And yeah, so it was, uh, that's how I start. I start writing. I always start with getting into my character's head and figuring out who they are and all of the sort of all of the parts of Brooke and her inner dialogue, my books are very voice-driven. Um, so it's really finding that character voice, really knowing that character before I start on the plot or any of the other elements of the book. And that's what I really focused on and that's where I found sort of Brooke's, all of Brooke's components, including her anxieties. Yeah, what
1: you mentioned about your Brooks being really voice-driven, that's what I found having read, both it sounded better in my head and unnecessary drama. And I really love that about your writings. It feels like I'm really living in the character's head. Though, I suppose, you know, with Brooke being such an anxious character, sometimes the overthinking or the catastrophizing is often really strong that I actually get a, like a touch of secondhand anxiety mm-hmm. myself. What was it like for you writing those moments?
2: I think that, that kind of thought process comes to me very naturally. Um, so it's not, and often people will say, Oh gosh, I felt so anxious reading that, which makes me feel bad because I don't want anyone to feel anxious. Um, and, and it often surprises me because sometimes her thought processes are such a natural part of my own thought process that I don't even register it as, as making it uh, you anxious. Mm-hmm. and I'm also really trying to make it funny as well and engaging and not too um like I want my book to be a joyful experience it's unnecessary drama especially is a rom-com at its heart so it's like balancing the dark and the light and what kind of humor can we draw out of that overanalyzing, very anxious very um sort of neurotic space that she's in
1: yeah no I don't think your book's dark at all I think it is there is quite a lot of joy and there was one no multiple times actually where I actually laughed out loud Same. (laughs) (laughs) and you're right I think even when she's really you know perfectionist and really in her head there were moments where that was actually quite funny like I think there was one stage where she was talking about binders or like sitting in front of the tv with all the color-coded post-it notes or something like that and I was like
2: that's my ideal
1: (laughs) Friday night as well. I would like to be doing that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. The um, relatability is big on, I I want, yes, people to feel seen and to relate to her um, and, and to, I guess, understand her and where that all of her anxieties are coming from. Mm. I know personally,
0: the elements of Brooke's anxiety that I really related to were the sort of performative and perfectionistic side of things so you know being the high achiever being the sort of person who's really holds themselves to a high standard and is really pushing for more and more and more and also the mum friend side of things that was something I related to a lot as well being seen as the responsible one and the caring one but uh, uh, you know where that comes from is often not a very healthy space so I think I really appreciated that and seeing You know, seeing where Brooke's anxiety was coming from with her family situation too was something that I thought was
2: yeah really well done. Thank you. Yes, you see a lot of um, firstborn older sister uh, who have to take on that responsible role. But in I wanted to explore the idea of being the younger sister and feeling like you have to look after the old your older sibling and that kind of dynamic, which is a different one again and yeah, to explore that feeling of responsibility and worrying about wanting to be in control all all the time and worrying about not being able to control the out of control people in your life, I guess. Absolutely. And it kind of, it made me think of the term high functioning
0: anxiety, which is not, you know, a, a clinical term. It's not a diagnosis that we would give as psychologists or anything along those lines, but that idea that someone's inner world can be really really intense and difficult to manage and has a lot of impacts but on the surface they might seem to be doing okay they might have their quirks they might have elements of their personality that seem grating or frustrating at times but you know they can still make it to work or to uni or so on they can still have some friendships they can still get you know do their housework and get through their day-to-day life but inner turmoil a lot of inner turmoil
2: is going on and and sometimes that anxiety is actually driving like is driving the achievement so you look like you are such a high achiever and you are so productive um but it's because you're afraid to not be a kind of worst case scenario planning yes. i think yeah, yeah. I really appreciated seeing that in brooke
0: and i know for me it really it felt reading brooke's dialogue felt a bit like stepping into my 18 or 19 year old self a little bit at times. Um, not just for the the sort of anxiety thoughts and that transition, but also just the sharehouse living situation. So as someone who has lived in her fair share of really shitty sharehouses <laughs> over time, there are a few elements that really could have come from my own stories. So things like being uncomfortable with how housemates have organized the dishes and thinking they were illogical the way things have been put (laughs) away and that causing conflict um being the only sober one at a house party and having to look after everyone else and even finding a mouse in my room that happened once that was not a fun time and had to um bring in my housemate's cat to try to at least get it in a corner so we could get it out of the room. (laughs) I was just wondering if any of these were inspired by real life events.
2: Yes, definitely. As well as my own experience and, and sort of, you know, throughout my whole twenties, seeing friends in share houses as well. I've sort of collected a lot of stories and experiences over time. The mouse came from actually, as I was writing the book, I was living in an old house, um, And we had a mouse and it was of great stress to me. Um, and so that, that got put in the book. Um, so I was living that as I was writing it. Um, so that's where the mouse came from, but yes, it's a share house. is kind of the perfect place to put, um, someone who is very anxious and controlling and likes things done their own way and likes to be tidy and likes to be clean and organized and have systems because. It gives them, it's their worst nightmare. It's, it's kind of, uh, it gives, there's a lot of um, good content that can come out of that.
1: Yeah. So that leads in nicely to one of our questions, which is that both It Sounded Better in My Head and Unnecessary Drama are about this sort of transition period between year 12 and whatever comes next. I was wondering what draws you to this time period in particular in a
2: character's life. Um, I just really like exploring that that time where you are you're suddenly an adult, but you don't feel like an adult at all. And school is behind you, and it feels like you've got the whole rest of your life sort of coming at you. And you, it it's it's an exciting time to explore as a writer because there's so much um, there's so much turmoil. There's so much hope um, for what life is going to be after you finish school and uncertainty. And I just think it's a really interesting time to be 18 and still, still a teenager, but wanting that independence, um, and, and finding it and struggling with it. And that's sort of where my, I think that's where the voice, when I'm writing, the voice has naturally fallen into someone of that age, um, dealing with that experience.
1: Yeah, lovely. No, I really enjoy reading about that experience as well, because I think both books are in quite a different way from Elise's experience, I suppose. I don't have this shared house experience, but I was an international student. So moving here at 18 was quite a big change. (laughs) Even though Brooke's experience is not the same, there's all of that you know, figuring out what
0: uni is like, not wanting to be late and trying to make friends. And the idea of the sort of friendships transitioning to I, I appreciated, um, you know, how her high school friends maybe are just not, you know, kind of going into the next period of her life and finding yes. finding her, it's probably not quite found family, but just, you know, finding the next group of friends yeah. who might be at, in the similar life stage, I, I think was really nice to see.
2: Yes, finding where you fit in and who you fit in with and yeah, how it, are you bringing any friendships along or are you not? And all of that is such a big challenging time when you start uni um, and it's, yes, it's fun to explore. Definitely. Yeah. I do find it hilarious who she is. It does end up connecting with from high
1: school,
0: but I'll yes. keep that for later. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for the uh, spoiler question, yeah. <laughs> we, we can touch on that. <laughs> but I, I did want to talk as well a little bit about uh, her relationship with Jesse. You know, we'll, we know it's a rom-com, so it's not a full spoiler to say who she, you know, what that trajectory is like. But before we go into sort of details about their relationship development through the book, I wanted to ask about uh Jesse's background. Um, so, you know, his feelings about his place and his family is really quite heartbreaking to see, mm. and an interesting contrast to Brooke, who is quite secure in her belonging at home. Obviously, with her own challenges with her family. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about Jesse's backstory and how um, how you developed his character?
2: Yeah, I wanted him <clears throat> for him to. Feel like he is never belonging. That was sort of the core of what was going on with him. Um, his background is that his parents had him; they they got divorced, both got remarried, and both had kids with their new partners. And so he is left feeling like uh, he's sort of the mistake child, the child that came out of the marriage that didn't work. And now they both have these happy other families. And he's just always moving between the two households, fitting in around everyone else and never quite belonging. And so he's got this sense hanging over him that he, he doesn't belong and he's looking for somewhere that he belongs. And that's kind of his journey in the book. Um, and that sort of speaks, that sort of, there's an incident between Brooke and Jesse in high school, and that, a lot of that is driven about from him having just come to the school and wanting to feel like he belongs there. Um, and that's, yes, his journey and finding a place in the share house that he finally feels comfortable after having that feeling with his parents and he feels like he can't communicate to them because they just fall into these old patterns of fighting, and yeah, that was that was the journey I wanted to explore with him, um, which I felt was an interesting story for him, and it made sense for his character, and I enjoyed kind of. It's not enjoyed is probably the wrong word, but that was it was what I wanted to explore with him and family and his dynamics and how they interacted with Brooke and her dynamics. I really love his. <laughs> his character, I suppose, because he's, he's a lovely guy.
1: Um, But he comes from this such, this heartbreaking background as well. I mean, not to put any pressure on you, but if you ever want to write a book about Jesse,
0: I will be here to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty cool time.
2: (laughs) I mean, that's kind of the challenge when you're writing, I guess, the, the book has the romantic trope of enemies to lovers sort of, um, they've had this falling, Brooke and Jesse have had this falling out in high school and they're now living together and, um, they are not friends. And so you, you have to with within that, you still need to make him a really lovable guy who is that you want them to be together and you want the reader to fall in love with him along with Brooke. So, it's the balancing act of he has betrayed her. He's not perfect, but he's still you need to understand him and fall in love with him as the reader. Mm. Yeah. Enemies to lovers is Elise's
1: favorite trope, whereas it doesn't always it doesn't <laughs> always work for me. But in this case, when we find out about the incident, I was like, oh no. But then he watch vampire diaries with her and just like being quite lovely about you know
0: all of it and like it was yeah i got on board pretty quickly hey, I, I don't i don't love enemies to lovers is a blanket rule okay i just think when it's done well it's one of the most satisfying tropes to have so. and
2: enemies a loose term when you say yeah. to lovers if you're yeah. talking about a fantasy book it could mean like literal yeah. enemy that has killed your friend's enemy um, yeah <laughs> whereas in this context it's someone who has betrayed you in high school and but you know that kind of wound can stay with you forever
0: mm. um well it's quite formative for Brooke as well and absolutely. you know feeding into her lot a lot of her anxieties and Worries about how other people perceive her and whether she's capable of being loved and all of these, you know, nasty thoughts that go through our brains at times. So Mm -hmm. yeah, such a formative experience for her. No Mm -hmm. wonder she held onto that resentment for many years to come.
2: Yes. And you know, she's a grudge holder, so (laughs) (laughs) she held onto her grudge.
0: (laughs) But I am glad that we got to see Jessie's perspective of it too. Um, Not to go into the spoilers too much as well, but I, I felt that you know, we could understand his
2: actions without mm-hmm.
0: thinking it was okay.
2: That's where, as an author, you, I'm trying to get to. Of, And it is hard. It's hard to get that balance right. I actually rewrote that backstory between them a few times because I, it, it was so crucial to get it exactly right and hit the exact right emotional notes for them both. Um, and even though it's just one sort of one chapter, one scene, if it wasn't right, the whole book kind of could fall apart. So yeah. Yeah. I, we think you did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> so like, yeah. On,
1: I could really feel the hurt you know, that Brooke was feeling, but I also, as you said, really understood where Jesse was coming from with all of that. Before we move on into the spoilers questions, do you have any author or book recommendations to share with
2: our listeners? In terms of YA books that I've read this year, um, I really love The Museum of Broken Things by Lauren Draper, uh, which is a really beautiful, um, it's kind of your classic YA, uh, which is set in a small town, dealing with friendships and romance and grief and there's a mystery and it's just such a beautiful book. I also recently read, um, in terms of nonfiction, I read a book called Wild Things by Sally Rippon, which is about, um, it's. I think this subtitle is called um, How We Learn to Read and What Happens If We Don't, and it's about her journey with her son, his difficulties with reading and how that kind of in the early years of his schooling and mm-hmm. the impact it had over his entire sort of schooling life and what reading, learning to read and um, everything about reading and how we learn to read. And it's not always as easy as we think. And it was just a fascinating book. And Sally is a brilliant um, children's book author who, yeah, has written this fascinating sort of nonfiction slash memoir. Wonderful. yeah. Thank
0: you for the recommendations. Um, I know Lauren Draper's book has been on my radar as well for a little while. So that's just adding, adding to the rationale to, to read that one soon. I think
2: It's, it's such a beautiful book. Excellent.
0: Well, look, in that case, we might uh, transition to some of our more spoil- more spoilery questions. So I guess uh, just for our listeners, just keep in mind that if you haven't read the book, now might be the time to tune out and come back once you have read the book as we'll be going into some of the stuff that happens in the latter third or so of the read.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or Mc Crispy Sandwich
0: first question I have in terms of spoilers is a bit more about Brooke and Jesse. so look we felt that they were very compatible and really enjoyed their um arc as the story went on I'm wondering about uh how you approach their relationship arc if you can shed some light into their you know trajectory as their relationship develops over the book vampire diaries and all
2: (laughs) (laughs) I say it's enemies to lovers but it's actually friends to enemies to friends to lovers and that's the kind of journey that they go on so they have this instant friendship connection in high school and then that all falls apart then they don't talk but they both sort of think of each other still she's holding on to this grudge still very hurt and then I wanted to build I had to you know build them reconnecting and Brooke did never want her to be vulnerable in front of him. So, of course, I have to make her continually be vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they have the, the 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 bonding incident is when he helps her when she um, has the uh, burst ovarian cyst uh, while she's out running and he is there and he takes her to the emergency room and that's when they bond. Was it, cis- situation that you <laughs> it? <laughs> Um So that was sort of the... That was the big turning point in their relationship uh, and I knew I, I knew I needed something fairly large, like a, a situation where Brooke is vulnerable and doesn't want to be and he helps her out um, in a way that really resonates with her. And from there they build into a friendship where they're spending time together and he's watching the Vampire Diaries with her and that's just because I personally, you know, watching TV shows together is a big part of what my partner and I did when we were um, sort of early in our relationship Um, and it's just a very, I think, enjoyable couple bonding experience. Um, So, yes, they bond and then you have the fun trope of fake dating that I just sort of, (laughs) (laughs) when Jesse steps in and um, pretends to be her boyfriend when Tristan, her ex comes into the story. And, you know, I love, I do love the fake dating trope and it just, I was never planning on having it in the book, but suddenly it all kind of fit together um, because I knew I wanted them to kiss without them being together. And of course you need to come up with a kind of convoluted reason for that to happen um, but I needed it to recreate what happened in high school and then for all like mm. I needed Brooke to face her worst fear which is that happening again and that's 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 sort of what that whole scene is about as well as lovely romantic tension um it's about you know Brooke having to relive the moment again and feeling like he's betrayed me again. Mm. Bringing back all of those feelings once more. The worst fear. Mm. And and after all this, she can't trust him and all of her trust issues and everything sort of that has created that. And she can't trust her. You know, it's all come from she's never trusted her dad. And so it's all there brought to the surface and she's left feeling very unhinged about the whole thing. And then I throw in... Her sister who brings chaos because in that third act I wanted I needed some chaos to be brought in, something to to blow open the story. And so Lauren comes in and that sort of brings everything to a head. And the journey is really, yeah, about Brooke, can she trust Jesse? Can she trust her feelings, his feelings for her? all of the worst case scenarios that she sort of approaches everything in life thinking about like this is all going to go wrong and his kind of gentle <sighs> bringing her back around on things and um, accepting who she is and just trying to build a really lovely relationship there between them. Mm. It's lovely that he is a calming presence but
1: you've avoided that that horrible trope of, you know, love will cure you kind of me. Yeah. But like yeah. He, she's still who she is, maybe a little bit, you know, she breathes a little bit more, but she's still, you know, she's still like so organized and she still has the yes. catastrophizing tendencies. He's just kind of there to anchor her mm-hmm. a little bit sometimes.
2: That's exactly right. Yes.
0: He's there to
2: anchor her is the perfect way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: One thing I really dislike is this idea of you know you can't be with someone else until you're whole yourself until you're you know fixed or perfect or cured or anything along those lines so it was yeah i just found it really nice to see that he
2: still loved her for who she was that's right that's exactly right and she she Grew like there was character Mm. growth, but as you said, that wasn't the journey that she was on. Which is like a magic solution and changing her personality entirely. And it was it was about her, more about her getting to the point where she can be loved and accept love for who she is. Yeah. Now this is a silly
1: question, probably, but I'm so curious. That Vampire Diaries episode
2: guide (laughs) is that really how you watch it? Yes, that is- <laughs> I'm glad you Yes, that is my actual guide. If yeah. someone was like, "How should I watch The Vampire Diaries?" Yeah. That would be the guide I would give them, which is uh, start at the beginning. Yeah. But the first season takes a while to warm up, and then yeah, you- there's only certain episodes I'd be watching from the later seasons. That is my yeah.
1: guide. Okay, because. I used to watch The Vampire Diaries, but I was Team Stefan. And then as soon as as it turned into Team Damon, I was like, oh, do I really want to continue? But I might try that
2: episode guide. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to email you the exact episodes to watch from each season, but I'll adapt them for a Team Stefan person. I mean, thank you. That would be great. (laughs) Um, Having never watched The Vampire Diaries, I cannot
0: comment, but I will say that as someone who loves Buffy the Vampire Slayer I have pretty much the same thing in mind when I try to get people to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer in terms of what to watch what to skip and what to watch with a grain of salt
2: (laughs) and that's really I was going to put a fake tv show in there and then I thought no I'm just going to throw in one that I've watched and and watched with other people or trying to get other people to watch and have that experience of like, no, just push through the first uh, 10 episodes, maybe 15. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I feel like there's so many shows like that where people just say, oh, you've just got to like push through the first seven seasons and then <laughs> season eight is amazing. I'm like, I don't think I want to watch seven seasons before I get to <laughs> Yes,
1: that's exactly right. Going back to what we were discussing before about how, you know, Brooke, has growth in the story, but, you know, not completely change. We both really like the fact that she stuck to her decision to not drink throughout the story. Yes. Can you talk a bit more about that?
2: Um, yes, it was never. I, w- I, I do, yeah, that is a bugbear of mine of stories of, like, they start out not drinking and then they have a drink and, I don't know, it, that was not the journey that she was on. That is a big challenge when you're young and you don't drink, and especially coming from, it depends on the environment that you're in, coming from a small town where the drinking culture might be quite extensive, that question, even before, you know, when you're young and in high school, you, there always needs to be an answer to the question of why don't you drink? And and even more so once you're 18 and you're out in the world. And um, so that was always going to be a challenge for Brooke. And I wanted to make this was not a story about her learning to go out and get drunk. Um, it was, that was just a part of who she was. And it was all tied up obviously in the story of her dad and his drinking and her sister and her drinking and all of that kind of makes Brooke who she is and is all part of her sort of her anxiety and her control issues and her desire to never feel out of control, um, But also just to be like, it's actually, you know, there are a lot of young people who don't drink and that's completely fine and normal. Um, So I wanted to make that a part of who she was and a part that wasn't changing.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I think I read somewhere that the number of um, young people choosing to be sober is actually rising or at least drinking is going down. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yes, I think so. Especially um over the covid years as well where it's harder to even get out and socialize, but like when I was 18 everyone everyone drank whereas now I think it is much more um much less, but again I think it 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 does depend on where you are, your social scene and all of that 100%. I and mean, we know that there's issues like vaping for
0: example which wasn't you know, it wasn't a thing when I was 18. Um, so yeah, it, was, it really depends on, I guess, what generation and, you know, where you are and all of these interacting factors that might go on. And I guess, you know, we also, as, as we touched on before, we did appreciate that Brooks' anxiety didn't completely disappear by the end of the book. Um, I feel like it would have been pretty disingenuous if it had, but it definitely, uh, it feels, like it's lessened in intensity by the end um she's more comfortable sitting with uncertainty being more present how would you how would you personally describe brooks in a world by the book's ending
2: definitely less anxious um and that's because she's feels more comfortable in the house she's in in like moving into a new house, starting university, all of that were like peak sort of triggers for her anxiety. And that's all happening at the beginning. And by the end of the book, she's, she's found friendships. She's comfortable in the house. She has the relationship with Jesse. Um, all of these things yet yeah, are grounding her, uh, easing off some of that uncertainty and that fear that she has, when everything's new and fresh and she's trying to figure it out so definitely her anxiety is lessened but she's still an extremely anxious person she still has a lot to work through with her family issues and everything that's going on but that's that's a long time journey that wasn't going to be covered in this story and that's not what i was trying to you know it was as i say it's it's a rom-com so her mental health is very much part of it, but that was not, it was not a journey from like, yeah, she's anxious. And now that's magically all solved. I think we're both glad about that. as Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cause that's a trope that
0: I personally really find frustrating as someone who mm. has lived experience of pretty significant anxiety. And has also been in some long-term very healthy relationships and magically does not go away just because of that. <laughs>
2: You don't have to solve it before you have the relationship, but the relationship won't solve it either. And those are the sort of the two. Yes. It can help, but it's not some kind of cure for it.
1: Yeah. I feel like we should talk about Lauren and maybe it's because I'm one of two sisters. I find what you said before was really interesting that it's so common for the eldest, the eldest daughter or the eldest child to be that, um, I was going to say controlling, but not con- that's not the <laughs> best word to be the one who's, like, organized and, you know, the mum friend, I suppose, and all that. It's very interesting to see that flip. And to have that scene at the end where Lauren was saying, well, actually, I've been looking after you too. You just never saw it. So I thought that was really lovely. So would you like to talk more about that uh,
2: relationship? Yeah, I wanted... Mm-hmm. It originally well my first idea of the book was going to be all about the sisters and then I changed it and no this is gonna, and then I decided no it's all it's in Melbourne and it's about uni and there's no sister but Lauren kept coming back um and I, I couldn't sort of um and, and I wasn't even she was just going to be a small sort of she was never going to appear but then she came bursting through in that final act and so she kind of Uh, worked her way in as a character and which I'm so glad because she's such an I think she's a really interesting character to write because you are just seeing her through Brooke's eyes all of the time um and it's not the most flattering uh viewpoint well Brooke obviously loves her but um and then when you do get that moment where they talk um and Lauren points out that she has looked after Brooke and yeah, I thought that was a really important sort of dynamic to show there are different ways of caring for each other, there are different ways of protecting each other um, mm-hmm. and everyone's going to do it in their own way and you can't control someone. And that that this is kind of going to be something that's with Brooke for the rest of her life, that ne- desire to protect mm-hmm. Lauren and Lauren is a risk taker and Brooke is not. Um, and that's, that is, a, I think, something that a lot of people do experience with their siblings when they when you have you can't you want to protect them but you can't control them when you're adults and, and it's a little bit drawn from well i am the younger sister i have an older sister my older sister is not lauren i should <laughs> if, although when i wrote my first book my sister read it and was like well where am i all oh, right <laughs> make sure i'm in the next one i was like okay the next one's all gonna be about (laughs) this but um we do there is a little bit of the dynamic in that she was always sort of i I wouldn't say i was i was certainly never her protector but we did have a different dynamic to that traditional um you know the older type a protector that was not our dynamic and so I guess that's a little bit what I explored here again emphasizing that she is not yeah the character of Lauren but but that sisterly relationship that um where you know each other so well and you know each other's uh you can easily poke and prod each other and fight and then it's fine um and you have that intimacy that you may never have with anyone else because you've grown you're not going to have a shared childhood with anyone else
1: yeah absolutely and what you mentioned there about, you know, wanting to protect your sister, but not, but trying to recognize a boundary, I suppose, about where their choices are their own. And there's not so much you can do about that. I think I can relate to that as well. I seem to go on a tangents a lot, but I should also say <laughs> <laughs> that karaoke scene, it's like, I don't, meltdown is not the word for it, but the kind of outburst that I have fantasize about before <laughs> <It's just> Like in <laughs> those moments when you're really angry at someone you just want to like make a scene and storm
2: off we're going to make a scene yes <laughs> yeah. and, and and in Brooke's head she like thinks she looks fantastic storming off but then <laughs> of course if you're the person watching them you're just probably yeah. embarrassed for them <laughs> yeah
1: and the whole aftermath of her going oh my jacket's still in there <laughs> yes <Okay.
0: laughs> if I did that that's what that would be what happened exactly <laughs> Yes, I'll probably leave my keys behind or something, <laughs> just not be able to go home, and yeah, yeah. it's never quite as uh, glamorous as it might seem to no. to have no. that kind of outburst, is it? No. <laughs> it's just so
1: satisfying though when she did it. It was like. Oh, it's, this is not pretty, but it's such a release. Yeah.
2: Yes. And I needed to have that moment where Brooke was out of control and like, again, sort of that's her fear of just like making a scene and being out of control and mm. everything flooding out of her and not her, not having, you know, her structure in place. And then, yeah. And it was fine. And she got through it. Yeah, she did. It was so, yeah, it was really good.
0: <laughs> It definitely demonstrates that we all have these, you know, moments that might be embarrassing but are probably quite cathartic and yes. have their benefits
2: even if they don't go according to plan. And if you bottle everything inside for too long, it will find a way out. Yeah. 100%.
0: <laughs> and I wanted to ask as well, um, did you ever – consider depicting Brooke start sort of actively addressing her anxiety within the timeline of the book so for example going to a counsellor or psychologist or doing self-help things because obviously she is trying to uh, address her insomnia at various Mm -hmm. points in the story Mm -hmm. but I was wondering if that was something that came across your mind with anxiety more broadly too.
2: I did have a I did have a counsellor in mind at one point but it just it didn't it didn't fit with the story and it didn't fit with where she was at um so I didn't but certainly she is someone who I see sort of having really good helpful healthy therapy in the future (laughs) as she goes into it I also think you know when you're 18 and you're moving out and you it's hard to recognize what your issues are and you know it takes a long time to get that self-awareness to go what what is this just me or is this something I can get help with or is, is everyone like this or is everyone not? And to learn, um, cause I think you quite, you can be quite insular through high school in terms of your very sort of inward thinking and, um, but not so self-aware of like, maybe I have like, maybe these are my issues. It takes a while to know what your issues are, I think. Um, and then to get the appropriate help. So it felt like she was not there yet.
0: Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. You know, we don't ask that question to say that this is what should be happening, but I guess, yeah, it's just something I get curious about as well when it comes to how, when writers are talking about um, mental health content is, you know, at what point do you want a character to have that scene? Is it appropriate to have that scene or is that not what the story is about? And I think in this case, it's, it's more about her coming to that kind of point where things are different for her maybe you know there are some long-term challenges ahead but we we see that growth within the story which
2: you know is is nice to see especially when you're writing for teenagers you do have to be really careful about how you're portraying mental health and yeah what they are what solutions they're seeking and where the character ends up so yeah getting it making getting the balance right is important
1: that reminds me of not directly related against tangents is my thing tonight, but um, <laughs> Tristan, it made me laugh that he's the, the son of psychologists. Yes, <laughs> God, what are our kids going to be
0: like today?
2: Like, he's not a bad character. No, as, like, I you know. like, I loved Tristan and found him endearing while also, you know, he was there to be some comedic relief yes. as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. The poem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the cringe. <laughs> yes. But yeah. I wanted him to sort of, he is like her, her ex and comedic relief, but also like they were well-suited as friends and like there were parts of, I wanted to kind of show like people can come back into your life and they can be someone else to you and actually maybe you work better that way and, yeah, so... I don't like to have out-and-out villains in my books, um, so that's what I try. I try not to do.
0: Well, very few people are fully villains in real life so, as yeah, well. Again, yeah. more suited to maybe fantasy and and so yes. on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Not so much in you know contemporary YA, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I love the comments about how, you know,
1: Tristan was drinking red wine at a certain age, trying to be sophisticated, (laughs) and probably really tries to be emotionally aware as well with all the things he did for Brooke, but just didn't quite come across well,
2: I suppose. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) All
0: All right. right. Well, look, Nina, I think that might be the end of our questions for tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been such a joy to have you on the show. And, you know, I always, always appreciate it when we can sit down with an author and just talk about
2: spoilers as well, (laughs) because
0: how often do we get to do that?
2: Yes, (laughs) this has been such a fun interview. Thank you.
1: (laughs) We're glad you enjoyed it as well but I will make a confession. We were at Leanne Hall's release of The Gaps. Yes. And I was like, that's Nina Kenwood. I should go say hi. I should say how much I love the book. And I was like <laughs> creeping from across the room. And I was like, uh, no, I don't know. Like, how, I don't know how to come across not weird about this. <laughs> so I'm glad I got to say it tonight. <laughs>
2: Oh, thank you. And uh, that is hilarious. And also absolutely would not have been weird. Okay. I would have it. But okay. next okay. time. So glad we got to talk. And this has been such a fun interview. And that wraps up
1: our interview. So on our website, some of the resources that we will link to include resources around recognizing and coping with anxiety, Nina's website
0: and social media accounts, and the two books that she recommends. And of course, a huge thank you to Nina Kenwood for donating her time to us. We really appreciated the interview and yeah, found it really insightful and fun to be honest. It was just (laughs) nice to have a chat with her about some of this stuff. Uh, Yeah, that was my fangirl coming out. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that wraps us up for today. So please remember to subscribe and follow to keep up to date with us and to know when our new episodes are posted. Hashtag season three is coming. Hashtag or is it? I don't know. It's coming. Something's happening. Something's (laughs) happening. Um, Just a reminder, of course, our website is novelfeelings.com. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you're also welcome to follow us on social media.
1: You're also welcome to follow me on Instagram uh, at books with an extra S. Uh, I don't know the state of my Instagram at the
0: moment. It's been alive. I just need to update it for consistency. Hey, it's still alive as far as I'm concerned. There's still Thank stuff happening over at Pave with Books. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Stay tuned. There's exciting stuff in the works. We hope to see you soon. All right. Bye, everyone.
2: Bye.